0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And as we mentioned in a listener mail segment a little while ago, we were thinking about doing an update on the breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and 2, because we did an episode a long time ago, years ago now, on gene patenting and these breast cancer genes, which a company called Miri Genetics had patented. And since... There was the Supreme Court case about that patenting and also the big news with Angelina Jolie's preventative mastectomy. We thought this definitely needed some updates. Right. Yeah.
1: Just to kind of familiarize you if you, you know, haven't heard of it. Maybe you didn't listen to the past episode, Tisk Tisk. But yeah, like Kristen said, it really entered the news big time on May 14th when Angelina Jolie published her op-ed in the New York Times explaining her decision to have a preventive double mastectomy after finding out that she carried a faulty BRCA1 gene, which increased her risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer by about 87 and 50% respectively. Doing this, having this procedure effectively cut Jolie's cancer risk to 5%, and she had genuine reason to worry because her mother, Marshalline Bertrand, died at age 56 of ovarian cancer In 2007, and on June 8th of this year, 2013, her mother's sister, Debbie Martin, died of the same disease. Now, Martin had found out that she also carried the faulty BRCA1 gene, but was not aware of it until after her 2004 cancer diagnosis. And so it's been a really intense spring for these cancer genes because right after the passing of Debbie Martin on June 13th, the Supreme Court... Invalidated the myriad patents on those. BRCA genes.
0: Yeah. So just to back up a little bit, let's talk about what those genes actually are. It's BRCA1 and BRCA2. And a lot of this information, by the way, is coming from the National Cancer Institute. And the the BRCA stands for breast cancer susceptibility gene one and two. And everybody, male and female, we all have two copies of each gene. And we get one from mom and from dad. And these are human genes that, belong to a class known as tumor suppressors. So when functioning normally, the protein that these genes produce actually helps prevent cells from growing and dividing too fast and, and developing those tumors. And so researchers believe that a defective or missing BRCA1 or 2 protein is unable to help prepare damaged DNA or fixed mutations that occur in other genes. And so those mutations are linked to breast and ovarian cancer.
1: Right. So it's not that if you have... It's not an issue of having BRCA1 or BRCA2. We all have it. It's an issue of having a faulty gene that's just not doing its job. And so these BRCA mutations are responsible for an estimated 5 to 10% of all breast cancers and
0: 10 to 15% of all ovarian cancers. And both men and women who inherit these uh, mutated BRCA1 or 2 genes are greatly at risk of developing cancer. Um, for women, it increases the risk of breast cancer to 60%. Compared to the population wide risk of 12%. And so essentially it amplifies your breast cancer risk by 5. And then, um, for women, it presents a 15 to 40% risk of ovarian cancer compared to 1.4% risk for the general population. And this is important to note, though, that the studies on the BRCA genes have been conducted on large families with cancer history. So scientists do say that there could be some other environmental and genetic factors at play. They are still figuring out precisely what these genes do. But but those are, and I know we just tossed out a lot of percentages and, and risk factors. But to sum it up as simply as possible, not a lot of people have these BRCA1 and 2 mutations. But for that subset of people like Angelina Jolie, for instance, who do have them, the risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer is greatly increased.
1: Right, and the BRCA1 gene was discovered by geneticist Mary Claire King in 1994. BRCA2 was discovered a year later, and she talked to Slate about her work in this field, and she said that it really confirmed the idea of genetic predisposition to cancer. My work showed that one could use the tools of genetic analysis to prove the existence of genes responsible for an inherited form of a major common disease and that you can parse out the inherited portion. So
0: Mary Claire King is really a trailblazer in this field. Yeah, and she didn't have a lot of backing when she was initially doing the work that led up to that discovery of the the BRCA1 gene in 1994. She was essentially working with a a very small pool of funding from the National Institutes of Health health and that was it she was almost doing it as side work because she was really committed to it so um so yeah it was it was huge and we'll get back into what those genes mean for women who have them um but to get into more of the the business side of these genes and that patenting case that we mentioned at the top of the podcast that was uh, recently struck down by the supreme court shortly after Mary Claire King Discovered BRCA1. This company called Myriad Genetics came along and patented. The gene sequence and and genes have been patented before genes, especially linked to other kinds of diseases. But this is what Mary Claire King said to Slate: Myriad insisted that it was the only entity that could perform the test and was aggressive in shutting down anyone else because of that patent that it pursued. And this forced other researchers to have to request Myriad's permission before they could look at the genes. So you can imagine how that would would. would slow down or bottleneck the flow of research into the development of breast and ovarian cancers. Right, absolutely. These patents gave the company rights
1: to future mutations on BRCA2 and power to exclude others from providing genetics testing. And so what does that do when only one provider can give you a service? The price skyrockets. So the company was charging upwards of $3,000
0: per test, which is hefty. Well, speaking of that test, what exactly is it? This is a test that Angelina Jolie got. Um, This also involves something called genetic counseling that happens before that. So when you go in for a BRCA gene test, what's going to happen is that they're going to do a DNA analysis to identify those harmful mutations that we've talked about that leads to that increased risk for developing breast or ovarian cancer. But first, you're probably going to go through something called genetic counseling which is a risk assessment based on a person's personal and family medical history. And it's going to include discussions about things like the appropriateness of genetic testing, the types of tests that might be used, the technical accuracy of the test, uh, medical implications for a positive or negative result, psychological risk, risk of passing on mutations to children. It, basically, it's going to give you a rundown of what might happen and whether even gene testing is the best course for you to take. You might not even need to do it. Right. And it really is not
1: offered to or performed on women who have an average risk of breast or ovarian cancers. It's really focused on people who are likely to have the inherited mutation based on that personal or family history or women who have specific types of breast cancer. And an interesting thing to note is how focused it is in a particular population. Uh, it's particularly present in members of the Jewish community who can trace their roots back to Central or Eastern Europe, known as Ashkenazi Jews. They were for centuries an isolated population. And this is coming from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. They said that one out of 40 people of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry have a mutation in BRCA 1 or 2 compared to about one out of every 800 members of the general population. So they are great candidates for getting that genetic counseling to possibly get the DNA test.
0: And outside of the Ashkenazi population, the types of family history that a genetic counselor might look at would be whether or not you have a first-degree relative, like a mother or a sister who developed breast or ovarian cancer, or multiple second-degree relatives, like cousins and aunts. Um, And what happens if you have... A positive result from that gene test. Well, it means that you have that genetic mutation. And if it's on the BRCA1 gene, that means you have a 60 to 80% lifetime risk of breast cancer and a 30 to 45% lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. And a positive BRCA2 result means that you have a 50 to 70% lifetime risk of breast cancer and a 10 to 20% lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. But, That doesn't necessarily mean that you should go the Angelina Jolie route of having the preventative double mastectomy. There are a range of options for what you can do if you do have a positive test result. And this was something that a lot of doctors wanted to remind women when the Angelina Jolie op-ed came out in the New York Times and everybody was talking about it. And obviously for women especially with a history of breast cancer, it got a lot of them thinking whether or not they should go ahead and get that double mastectomy just to lower their risks. And and that's actually n- not necessary in a lot of cases. That's pretty much the most invasive thing that you can do. And for ovarian cancer, Jolie actually uh, decided against having her ovaries removed. But that's another thing that can happen. But on the less invasive side, options include surveillance, which is just regular cancer screenings. Um, you might have prophylactic surgery like Jolie. Um, there are risk avoidance tactics. And then there's chemo prevention, which you can also do, which typically involves taking the drug tamoxifen, which has been linked to lowering uh, the spread of breast cancer.
1: Well, Jolie definitely had quite an effect on this conversation. I mean, we're talking about it right now. To you, um, a story in the Miami Herald from June 30th quoted some healthcare professionals who have seen a definite difference. Since Jolie's op-ed appeared, uh, Maxine Chang Chin, who's a cancer risk assessment counselor at Memorial Healthcare System in Broward, Florida, said that it, it did open up the conversation. She said some patients heard about it and now call and say they want to have genetic testing done. And they're also, she was explaining, just kind of more open and more comfortable with the idea because Jolie is also very young to have made this major decision.
0: But at the same time, because there is no standard criteria for BRCA genetic testing at the moment, in other words, there isn't a standard checklist of, you know, if you have this, 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 then you should get it. That's why things like the genetic counseling exists. Some people do caution that while it is great that Jolie raised the awareness again the path that she took is not necessarily the path that would be appropriate for all women, regardless of whether they test positive for BRCA1 or 2. And there was a study of more than 2,600 women in nine countries who did test positive for one of those gene mutations. And it showed that many American women in particular have chosen to have their breasts or ovaries removed once they learned that they carried the genes But again, you know, that's one thing on a menu of options for for what might happen. Um, And kind of on a side note, and I feel like this is something that deserves maybe more attention and possibly its own podcast episode. But but there's been a bit of a medical downside to our vigilance. Some might even call it over-vigilance towards breast cancer in particular. Um, In the New England Journal of Medicine, a study recently found that 1.5 million women have been needlessly treated for cancers in the past 30 years, largely due to faulty mammogram results. And as many as a third of tumors detected by mammograms are so small and slow-growing that they'll never develop Hmm. into cancer. And so on the one end, you might say, well, better to be safe than sorry. But on the other end, there are also a number of doctors wondering whether or not the age for mammograms, when you start getting mammograms, should go up, or if our routine mammograms should perhaps be less routine um, because there's a lot of invasive surgery happening that doesn't necessarily need to happen. So just one thing to keep in mind. And also when it comes to breast cancer versus ovarian cancer, while breast cancer, thanks largely to organizations like Susan G. Komen that have, through their pink campaigns, uh, raised so much awareness about breast cancer. And just because breast cancer, I would say, is the most visible cancer in our culture, Uh, whereas ovarian cancer is usually more deadly Mm -hmm. to women, even though statistically we're less likely to develop it. But it's more deadly because we usually catch it later on because our vigilance is really focused on breast cancer more than anything else. So just a side note to keep in mind. Right.
1: Well, we told you earlier about how the Supreme Court did away with the patent of the BRCA genes. Well, let's, let's get into that fight a little bit. Um, way back when in 2009, the ACLU, along with the Public Patent Foundation, sued the Patent and Trademark Office, Myriad Genetics, and the University of Utah Research Foundation arguing that patenting pure genes is unconstitutional and hinders research for a cancer cure. They basically said that because patenting the genes limits research and the free flow of information, it violates the First Amendment. And Arthur Kaplan, who's the director of the Center for Bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania, at the time was quoted as saying, it's like trying to patent the moon. You didn't do anything to create it. You just discovered something that already existed. So they weren't solely focused on the BRCA genes in the suit. They were kind of talking about genetic uh, patents altogether. And as part of this suit, ACLU did note that about 20% of all human genes are patented. A little bit of trivia that I did not realize.
0: Yeah, and at the heart of this issue, it's the fact that the patenting of this genetic sequence and of the genetic sequences of those other uh, human genes that have been patented as well, it violates a legal precedent that has long been established, that you can't patent products of nature. And one of the examples that the ACLU offers is that, say, you... You want to get iron out of the earth. You can't patent that iron. You can patent the way that you get the iron out of the earth. You can patent what you might make out of it, but you cannot patent that naturally occurring substance. Right. And somebody else compared it to patenting eyeballs. And
1: like if you just find an eyeball that pops out of somebody's head, you can't pick it up, dust it off and patent it. To which I
0: say, what are you doing picking up eyeballs off the ground? Exactly. And which, to which I say I really need to rethink my plan about my eyeball <laughs> empire that I'm, that I'm creating. Yeah, sorry, sorry about all those eyeballs you've been collecting. <laughs> You're gonna have to find us something else to do with them. It's called 2020 Enterprises. Zing! <laughs> So what happened on what did happen? (laughs) Well, I just made a bad eyeball pun. And on June 13th, 2013, the Supreme Court invalidated. The Braca patents, and it ruled that patents on human genes are invalid, which is a major shift in patent law. Because of that, note again that a twenty percent around there of all human genes have already been patented, and it overturns the Patent Office policy. But patents on cDNA, which is complementary DNA, and man-made DNA molecules are okay. But scientists can provide genetic testing with. Out relying on that complementary DNA. And so how did geneticist Mary Claire King, who first discovered the BRCA gene react, she said, I am delighted. This is a fabulous result for patients, physicians, scientists, and it is common sense. And there were a lot of supporters of this,
1: including the American Medical uh, Association. And Lori Andrews, a professor at the Illinois Institute of Technology, Chicago, Kent College of Law. Could that name be longer? broke it down for what this means. And she said, basically, all genetic tests will become affordable and more researchers will be able to look for cures. And on that token, King also told Slate for about what's next. She said, it's going to be developing multi-gene panels, which are one-stop shops for testing for susceptibility to breast and ovarian cancers on many genes. It's been a very high
0: priority. And the test that they're working on, King said, has been called Broca, B-R-O-C-A, and they've been using it for a long time, but up until that Supreme Court decision in validating the patent, they had to mask the Broca 1 and 2 genes so that they wouldn't violate that patent that Myriad Genetics had. And so with this development, these multi-gene tests that King is talking about can be made available to people by many firms, not just Myriad. And she says, in fact, I think they were on the market straight. Right after the ruling and... Fun fact about that Broca name. Um, She says it comes from the 19th century French surgeon and pathologist, Pierre-Paul Broca, who was the first person to describe inherited breast cancer in families in a systematic way. And based on his work, geneticists are currently trying to trace the relatives of those families Hmm. that he looked at from the 1860s to see if they have those BRCA1 or 2 mutations. Science! I know. I love you, science. I love you so much. French. And French,
1: French 19th century surgeons. French science. French science. Bonjour. Science. <laughs> Any, yeah, anyway. So I hope we, Kristen and I have thrown a lot of stats at you, and we've, we've kind of glossed over some stuff, but I, I hope this was informative. And, you know, we do, it is worth repeating and and reemphasizing that these mutations are extremely rare. The last thing we want is for you to be sitting there at home concerned that you need to run out and get either genetic counseling or a, you know, a massively invasive surgery.
0: Yeah, there's less than a 4% prevalence rate of the mutations among all ethnic groups and around 5 to 10% of cancers are inherited. So it's still in the minority. The problem with inherited cancers, when it has that strong genetic link, is that they tend to be a lot more aggressive. And also BRCA is not the only gene mutation that can contribute to breast or ovarian cancers. and They're up to 15 other genes that can also increase the risk, which is why those multi-gene panels that King is talking about that are in, in development could be very helpful. Um, and finally, just remember, there are less invasive treatments then preventative double mastectomies like Angelina Jolie's that can happen even if you test positive for one of those mutations. So while, you know, it, it is important to remain vigilant and to stay updated on our, you know, our doctor's appointments and health screenings and pap smears and all of that kind of stuff Um the only thing that I guess we would caution is to uh, to stay informed, but not to to panic. Right.
1: Well, so let's hear from listeners now. I, I would be interested to hear uh, what your reaction was to Angelina Jolie's op ed. If you have breast or ovarian cancer that runs in your family, have you gone through genetic testing or, or counseling? I would I would be interested to know what that process was like.
0: Yeah, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send emails. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or send us a message over on Facebook. And while you're writing us, we are going to take a quick break and we will get right back to a couple of letters. And now back to our letters. Caroline, we have gotten so many letters about short hair. A lot of short-haired ladies riding in, and first letter I'm going to read is from Margot. She writes, I'm a long-time short hair lady. My mom started me out young with a pixie cut and continued it until I rebelled in my later elementary through middle school years. Once I got to high school, I no longer felt the need to blend in so I cut all 17 inches off into a short haircut inspired by Audrey Hepburn. The pixie stayed with me all through college when I learned how easy it is to cut and maintain it oneself. I started cutting my hair in college and now nine years later, I haven't paid for a cut since It feels very liberating to not have to worry about blow-drying or straightening. I use a tiny dab of cocoa butter to give it a little extra texture every day, but besides that, it is easy as pie. I, too, have experienced some criticism. Kids often stare, clearly trying to figure out my gender. Once, an elderly Italian lady stared at me for a good ten minutes before she finally asked what my gender was, and I was even wearing big dangly earrings, a tiny tank top, and a skirt. I've learned to laugh off these incidents and feel glad that my hair can still surprise people and maybe open someone's mind a little bit. Also about men. Men young and old are constantly approaching me and complimenting me on my striking hair. I actually get more complimentary attention with short hair than with long. I've tried long hair for a couple of years recently, but I felt less respected at work, less confident out on the street, and more frustrated than ever when I had to figure out something to do with my hair. I'm sure these feelings had more to do with how I felt about myself than how I actually looked. But for me, difference is amazing and she attached pictures of her with short hair versus long hair and you know what i'm gonna say that i am also a fan of the short hair it is such a cute cut and the fact that she hasn't paid for a haircut in how long and doesn't have to do anything to it oh Margot, you make me wish i had a jawline that could wear a short haircut <laughs> so thank you for your letter and
1: for the pics Margot. And Kristen, I have a Facebook message here from Tatiana about her short hair. She says, I just heard your podcast about pixie cuts yesterday, and I was so happy to hear some intelligent conversation on the topic of women with short hair. I've had my extra short hair for almost two years now, and I love it. It was a totally liberating experience, and I've never felt so confident or so much like myself in my life. Sure, I had my fears while I was in the salon chair. Is this a good idea? What if I look bad? Will men still find me attractive? But guess what? It was a good idea. I'm definitely feeling sexier than ever, and not to toot my own horn, I've actually attracted more men with short hair than I ever did with long hair. By the way, totally giggled when I heard the short hair infertile thing, and now I have a new way to tease people who ask me about my hair. Oh, why'd I cut it this short? It's because I'm barren. So thank you, Tatiana. You do look adorable in your profile picture, and we appreciate you writing in.
0: Yes, indeed. And thanks to everyone who has written in and tweeted us and Facebooked us and all that good stuff. Again, our email address is momstuff@discovery.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and like us over on Facebook and leave a message there. We're on Tumblr as well at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And last but certainly not least... We are on YouTube. We have new videos four times a week that you should totally come over and watch. We are at YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.